Hello and welcome to the SRNA Ask the Expert podcast series. My name is Gigi DeFibri and I moderated this podcast with Dr. Sirena Gawuga. SRNA is a nonprofit focused on support, education, and research of rare neuroimmune disorders. You can learn more about us on our website at wearesrna.org. Our 2023 Ask the Expert podcast series is sponsored in part by Horizon Therapeutics, Alexion AstraZeneca Rare Disease, and Genentech. Horizon is focused on the discovery, development, and commercialization of medicines that address critical needs for people impacted by rare autoimmune and severe inflammatory diseases. They apply scientific expertise and courage to bring clinically meaningful therapies to patients. Horizon believes science and compassion must work together to transform lives. Alexion AstraZeneca Rare Disease is a global biopharmaceutical company focused on serving patients with severe and rare disorders through the innovation, development, and commercialization of life-transforming therapeutic products. Their goal is to deliver medical breakthroughs where none currently exist, and they are committed to ensuring that patient perspective and community engagement is always at the forefront of their work. Founded more than 40 years ago, Genentech is a leading biotechnology company that discovers, develops, manufactures, and commercializes medicines to treat patients with serious and life-threatening medical conditions. The company, a member of the Roche Group, has headquarters in South San Francisco, California. For additional information about the company, please visit gene.com. For this podcast, I was joined by Dr. Sirena Gouga. Dr. Sirena Gouga is Director of Research at the Preparedness and Treatment Equity Coalition. As Director of Research, Sirena facilitates the design and implementation of the Coalition's Health and Equities Research Grant Programs that further the Coalition's mission to increase the use of data metrics to reduce health inequity in the healthcare system. Before joining the Preparedness and Treatment Equity Coalition, Sirena completed a PhD in Molecular Pharmacology and Physiology at Brown University, focused on the influence of adverse childhood experiences on inflammation and health outcomes in adulthood. Subsequently, she earned an MSW in macro social work at Boston University. She also was research associate on a PCORI-funded community-based participatory research program at Boston University School of Social Work. Sirena has also participated in patient advocacy and outreach for many years, serving as advisory board member for a number of organizations, including Patients Like Me and the Lupus Foundation of America. She's part of the inaugural class in the Academy Health, the Op-Ed Project Public Voices Fellowship, and was recently appointed to the Academy Health Diagnostic Equity Advising Group. Thank you, Sirena, for joining me today to talk a little bit more about disability. Today, we're going to talk about accessibility and some other you know, topics related to disability and, and the world. So to start, I just wanted to ask, what is accessibility? Well, I mean, I think everyone has their own personal definition for it, but the, the, the way that I think of accessibility is the whether it's the built environment, the social environment, the structures in place that make it possible for all of us to do what we need to do to the best of our abilities. So, you know, often when we think about accessibility, we really think about the built environment. Are there ramps? Are there curb cuts? You know, is there an elevator? How do I get on the commuter rail if I'm in, you know, I'm a wheelchair user? 
But, you know, accessibility is about more than that. You know, it's it's about are there accommodations in the workplace? Are there accommodations in the educational system? Are there ways for people who identify as folks with disabilities to be part of the world instead of isolated from it? Got it. And so you talked about how accessibility, we think about things like ramps and curb cuts and, and stuff. But, you know, I've, I've, I have heard this kind of discussion happen, and I think it's interesting and sort of frames accessibility in a little bit of a different way. But do you mind just talking about how kind of everyone, even someone who's maybe non-disabled, has access needs? So, you know, the idea that if someone lives on the 20th floor of a building, right? Mm -hmm. They need to access that apartment, for example. They need an elevator. That access need is there, regardless mm -hmm. of having a disability or not. And so that, I mean, that's just kind of one example. But wasn't sure if you've had, you know, conversations or thoughts about kind of access needs for everyone and how it's just kind of our, our framing, I guess, that impacts how we think about that. Yeah, I think, you know, it, it, it follows again when whenever we talk about accessibility, we immediately go to disability. But it's really, again, about making life functional, making life doable, if you will, for everyone. It reminds me, for example, so when I was an undergrad, we used to have to register, register for classes. You know, it's late summer, it's like August, early September in New England. And we go into this building that's been, you know, on campus since like the 1700s or something. It's got these narrow stairwells. Everything's all hot and crowded and there's no air conditioning. And so, you you know, as, as registration deadline gets closer, you've got potentially, you know, a hundred plus people snaking through the hallways of this uh, building. And everyone has to do their registration on paper. Not everybody knows all the different codes for the classes. So you could be in line in this really hot, stuffy environment, climbing up these narrow stairs for hours on end. And we did it. People also fainted, <laughs> you know, perfectly healthy young adults who had no identifiable health conditions passed out because it was 90 degrees in a building from like 1780 something. So when they moved to a computerized registration system and when the registration office moved to a building with an elevator, things were so much easier, not just for disabled students, but for everybody. And, you know, if you think about making the environment easier for people to use, it will inherently be easier for disabled people to use. And I think often when we are talking about how can we make something more accessible, if we look to disabled people as a small population or a marginalized population, it's like, we're doing this for them and we're not gonna get anything out, out of it. Well, just about, every modification you can think of that helps disabled people helps abled people as well and as we always say 
all people are really temporarily abled. So, you know, you, you have to think about it and how does this make life easier, more functional? I mean, we can look again to Zoom, like we're doing this over Zoom, like this is totally easy. That people with, you know, disabled people have been asking for years, like we have the technology, can we get remote work? No, it can't be done. Yes, it can, because we did it on that. So, you know, every, and it was something that helped, you know, parents with small children. It helped people who had skills that didn't necessarily fit, I don't know, the geography that they lived in. Let's say you're an expert in social you know, media engineering, but you can't move to California. Well, it made it possible. Is that something that helped people with disabilities? Absolutely. Did it help other people? Yes. So access is about more than just like, can I move around my environment? And can my life be improved by making changes to the world in which we live? Yeah, no, that was a great explanation. I think, yeah, it just, as you said, when people focus just on, this is just for the, I mean, 20% of the population has a disability. It's not necessarily mm-hmm. just mobility, but, you know, all of all types of disabilities, but people think, oh, this is only just helping 20% of the population. And it's, you know, it, when you think kind of beyond that, it, it, there's, there's so much that these different the, the, the way that the built environment is created that kind of helps everyone. And as you said too, every, yeah. everyone is, te- you know, if you get old enough as you age or, you know, things happen, you know, everyone eventually has a, a disability at, at a certain point, basically. So, mm-hmm. yeah, you know, just one other thing about that. I was just reading an article, not like a couple days ago about how younger generations are have really high rates of closed caption use on you know on watching television and it made me think I have I have normal hearing but I've been using closed captions on my television for probably like almost 20 years I like it I can follow what's going on I can look down I can look up and I know what happens you know and I think a lot of people are the same way. They, for whatever different reason they may use it, it's something that, you know, makes television accessible for people with hearing impairment or who, you know, who are deaf, part of the deaf community. But millions more people are using it for a lot of other reasons. And it, it's still an accessibility issue. Like, I might be like, I, I like plants. So I'm often potting plants. I'm watching television. I might look down and be completely lost. But because there's captions, I can catch up because they always linger a little bit. And so there's a lot of things that are, and I think probably other people may think, oh, I do this all the time too, and might not necessarily think about how the battle happened to get that to be a normal part of you know, going on your television, just turning on captions. It used to be so much more of a a struggle to to even find it. And before that, for it even to be 
become implemented as a as a normal part of TV um, function. So, yeah, there's a lot of things that in our life in our lives that were for some other reason that we have purpose for ourselves and that are still considered accessibility. It's not just you know for disabled people. Definitely, yeah. I'm definitely also a captions person. I don't know mm-hmm. why. It just it it helps me. I I don't even yeah. I, it's it just helps like me process the information better or something. So yeah. Although there's still you know issues with things like theaters and stuff not having um, yes. It, you know yes. at home it's it's very easy, but um, but yeah, definitely still some some access issues kind of in the the broader you know, watching movies in like a theater, for example. Mm-hmm. So, but so in, in terms of thinking about accommodations and where someone might need accommodations, like with with family maybe who don't necessarily just, just know what accommodations or what access needs someone might have with friends at work or school, how should someone kind of go about asking for these accommodations or access needs? Now, I, I mean, I want to preface and say I cannot speak to every type of accommodation need or accessibility need that someone may have, but I think probably the first thing is being able to recognize that you need an accommodation or you have an accessibility need. Uh, um, I was, you know, thinking about how it's, there's this need to be strong for people, especially when they are newly disabled and not maybe not even recognizing that this is what, what they're struggling with is something that can be accommodated, that can be fixed. So that's the first thing. And that, you know, of course, goes uh, to some extent back to where we were talking about what does it mean to be disabled? And are you know being comfortable with the idea of needing assistance of some kind, some kind of accommodation? Now, every the settings are all very different. I think that there's a degree of confronting ableism, stigma, fear in all of all any setting that you may need accommodations or have accessibility issues um hopefully one of the 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 closer relationships to you so family and friends would be somewhat easier hopefully people would be able to see that you're having trouble of course if you have an invisible disability that may be more difficult but i think that in those situations if there is a good relationship just asking just explaining the situation and asking is a good start people i read a lot of advice columns and people have very complex relationships so i'm all predicating all of this of course and you have a good relationship with your friends or a good relationship with your family and that they want to love and support you and just asking so you know, 
say, for example, your sister wants to have her wedding in a place that is inaccessible to you in some way, whether it be there's no elevator or maybe it's like, for me, I have lupus. I can't sit in the sun all day. So maybe it's something that's like in Phoenix in the summer. You know, you, you may have there many different issues, but just saying perhaps we can talk about ways to make this easier for me to be part of this. Perhaps we can find a compromise even. You know, but but at the end of the day, it's about what you need. So you don't want to compromise your accessibility needs or the accommodations that you need to fully participate. But it's a negotiation because I think there are a lot of people who may not want to recognize that their friend or their family member is disabled and that things will have to change for them to be and continue to be included as part of the family unit, as part of the friend unit. Uh, but I, I think just having a frank and civil and caring discussion about the things that need to be changed for you to continue to be part of social life is the place to start. As for more institutional settings, like work in school, <laughs> uh, you, you know, every, oh, I want to want to say everyone, that's such a blanket statement. So we have the Americans with Disabilities Act, which dictates that, uh, as I say, reasonable accommodations for, you know, increasing, improving accessibility must be made for disabled people. The problem is with the Americans with Disabilities Act is that it requires you to advocate for yourself. It's it's more of a stick than a carrot. And you have to try very, very hard before it really kicks in. And so you may run up against issues where they want to accommodate only to the degree necessary by what they can think they think they can get away with legally um and reasonable is such a soft and floppy word because that's how employers got away for, for many many years for saying we can't do remote work even though you would be able to do you're sitting in front of a desk at work you can sit in front of a desk at home but we can't do that because that's not a reasonable accommodation so it's a soft word so it's something that in an institutional setting will require you to have a better knowledge of your rights both the rights under the american Dis with disabilities act any rights that you have in the state that in which you live, or if you live in a different country, the country in which you live, and say the school, whether it's a public school, private school, the laws that govern what it is they have to provide you as well. And go into those situations 
armed with that knowledge so that you can push back because it's a lot easier to roll over someone who doesn't know what they're entitled to. And it happens to people all the time. And if you can go in, you, you know, you don't want it to start off confrontational, but at the same time, you have to be prepared for one because you have to be your best advocate. You know, they they can easily push you off and say, this is too much work for us. We'll find someone else to do this job. They can't legally say that, but they, you know, they always can find another reason to get rid of you. And in the school setting, they can say, well, we just don't have the funding for this. Maybe this is not the right place for your student. And even though public schools are have to educate everyone, uh, they often find ways not to do so for people who have accessibility needs. So I would say friends and families start from a position of kindness and having to, perhaps having to educate them about what you need. And I think with the institutional settings, with working with school, come in prepared to advocate for yourself and know what you need and what they are supposed to provide for you. Uh, because the ADA is not a carrot, it is a stick. And, you know, it's an expensive stick because you have to wield it. So, be, you know, you you have to file a lawsuit under the ADA for it to start kicking in. So unfortunately, it is a litigious <laughs> environment when you're trying to pursue those things. So you want to make sure as much as possible you can, you know, head off any of that by knowing exactly what it is you need and how to get it as expeditiously as possible without requiring a lawyer because it sucks that that's how the ADA is, is generally set up so if you can go in and advocate for yourself and often when you are able to state what it is you need and what they're obligated to provide you it can facilitate things in a way that saying not having that information doesn't yeah, and you know, in schools, there are offices for students with disabilities, so it's important to kind of meet with mm -hmm. them and come up with a plan. Right. And there's definitely a lot of resources, I think, available online. With you know, there's obviously you get into like legal stuff with employment, and education, things in terms of accommodations. But there are definitely resources out there that we can't obviously cover co cover everything. But yeah. So you also talked about, obviously, you know, for example, during the pandemic, we realized, we, we saw that all these accommodations that disabled people have been asking for for years were able to be made for the general kind of public. But so, you know, thinking about hiring people with disabilities or disabled people, what do you think some, some of the benefits are of hiring a disabled person? I think one of the biggest benefits of hiring a disabled person is frankly just hiring someone who has the skills that you need to do the job. You know, a lot of the work, the the employment that is, is available today is increasingly 
sedentary, it's increasingly cognitive, it's work that it's not heavy labor, you know? So a lot of jobs out there are, are ex, I mean, we use this term, but they're fully accessible to people who have skills and need to be able to use them. So first and foremost, it's really just having someone who can do the job. And if someone who's, you know, has a disability is the person who has the skills that you need, that's the advantage of hiring them. They've got the skills you need. But okay, we're going to talk more about like someone who is a disabled person, let's say, identifies as such. I think without wandering into the minefield of, you know, adversity is a strength and all that stuff there's a reality in that you as a disabled person you have to be more persistent and you have to be a stronger advocate you have to be willing to go at a problem over and over again because we have a, a world that is not accessible that we have a world that's ableist so to get the things done that able-bodied people can do you have to work harder Eat perseverance is a skill that I think just about any employer would want from an employee. I think there is a degree, especially when you're looking at healthcare, social services, nonprofit settings of empathy and compassion that is often gained from the experience of being a disabled person in this world. You know, not all marginalized identities are the same. And of course, you know, there's a lot of uh, difficulties within, you know, the, the disability rights, disability justice group in terms of intersectionality. But as a whole, I think there is a certain degree of empathy, of compassion for people who are struggling that you may find more in disabled people than you wouldn't find, well, I'm not gonna say you wouldn't, that you may find more in disabled people by virtue of the experience that they've had. And so I think that's another advantage. And, I, you know, frankly too, the, the advantage is having people interact with all different types of disabilities and recognizing these people are capable because so much in our, our society that there's this, this isolation, this, this walling off of disability and therefore it's conceived as of as a weakness and that these are people who aren't capable. And now you have someone in your environment who openly identifies as a disabled person and they're able to keep up and they're able to do the job of to keep up because we know lots of people who are able-bodied. Yeah. So, <laughs> but you have someone now in your environment and perhaps you've never known anyone who was openly disabled and you know working full-time in the type of field that you're working in and now Here's an example. It's the same type of argument that we have for other types of diversity. But the fact of the matter is it's true. Encountering someone who has an experience that is not like your own can open you to the fact that 
one, there are experiences that are not your own, but two, that people can thrive in the same type of environment that you're in, even if they have a different life experience. So it just opens, I think it opens up the workplace for the for a, a group of people who face challenges every day in just living that can transfer that same drive and energy and skill set to any range of workplaces, along with what they're already capable of doing. I mean, there's no reason for someone who's I, I I'm working on op-ed right now about disability and you know you know science education and you know there there was there was a study that shows like what's the there's a higher percentage of people if you, this is kind of esoteric but a higher percentage of scientists at phd level with disabilities that are unemployed than people who have who are able-bodied there is no reason for that, really. I mean, skills are transferable. Maybe you can't stand at a bench anymore, but that doesn't mean that you don't have other skills that you can move to. But because we have an, we, we are in such an ableist world, there's blocks in people's brains. And so we need to kind of move those blocks away and say, what are skills that someone has irrespective of their body habitus or, you know, their mental health status, neurodivergence, anything under that whole umbrella of disability, what skills do they have and are they able to do this job with reasonable accommodations? If that's a yes, then this is a good hire for you and broaden the way that you think about things. But, you know, we're still kind of fighting through this. <laughs> Definitely. And so you talked a little bit about this, but do you have any kind of other thoughts on why you think employment rates of people with disabilities are so much lower than uh, non-disabled people? Yeah, I think... I think some of... I mean... Putting, if we put aside people who cannot work to whatever extent it may be because of their disability, for people who can with reasonable, that word, ADA defined reasonable accommodations can do a job and do it well, I really think that a lot of it, a lot of the, the, the issues are related to the effects of ableism, whether it's a lack of vision of being a disabled person in your workplace and or fearing that someone with a chronic illness will you know always be absent and now that you you know that that that's the first thing in your head that whether or not you know they, they are capable of this work. I think that until recently, and it actually still to some extent now that there's this whole return to office move, not acknowledging 
the different ways in which people, different ways in different settings in which work can be done, the inflexibility of um, a lot of employers in understanding that the work that is done, a lot of this positive work that dis disabled people can you know, engage in quite easily can be done out of an office setting. I think that some of it too is just being, I mean, frankly, people being told that they can't work because they are, have a disability. And again, that sort of cycles around to ableism and a lack of um, role models. And, you know, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy kind of. If you're told that you can't work, you don't work. And then if you don't work, you don't have a work history. If you don't have a work history, you can't get a job. And, you know, we're not going to cure ableism overnight. <laughs> but I think that really it, it that's a big part of it. And this lack of imagination and how can we find a place for this person? You know, I, I don't, I'm not saying that everyone gets to do whatever job they want to do because there are some jobs that maybe just aren't suited to people. Like I'm not going to be a bike messenger. That's okay. <laughs> you know, like I, well, I'm not saying that, you know, like we should be, give people to do anything they want. You know, like, no, but a lot of the work that is done in this country today can easily be accommodated. And I think it's ableism and a lack of flexibility in thinking about how these jobs can be done differently that really keeps employment rates so low. Because I know a lot of people who are unemployed or underemployed. And it's just, it's not because jobs aren't out there because they certainly aren't out there. And a lot of them are open forever. And it's like, this job can be done by someone with a disability. You're just not seeing those people. And I think sometimes too, we kind of count ourselves out and think, oh, they're not going to want to interview me or they might be really excited until I show up and I have, you know, a mobility device and then the interview goes downhill from there you know the, the, I mean I'm sure people have had those kinds of experiences and then their you know motivation goes down they're deflated because of this ableism that they're in front of so we can just say it's ableism <laughs> but, uh, but uh, you know there obviously there's all of those reasons are underneath that heading overwhelmingly Definitely. Yeah. I mean, I remember going to job interviews and never knowing like when to disclose that I use a wheelchair, you know, like, do mm -hmm. I tell, mm -hmm. I have to make sure that the office that I was going to was accessible. So like you have, you know, it just was a, a stressful thing and trying to figure out like when to have that conversation with a potential mm -hmm. employer and then just Kind of knowing that the, I don't know the the fear that they'll look at you differently too, just based right. on you know. But but yeah, um, and then also I mean our kind of in terms of like systemically we we also just don't have the way kind of benefits in terms of someone having if someone becomes disabled and getting social security disability income for example. Right. 
there are so many barriers to to working because there's limits to the amount that you can earn people have to be really strategic about how much they work it just there isn't you know you you either have to be in a job that's making enough money to cover kind of all your expenses or you know it's there's not it you know there's just it aren't great kind of societal supports there yeah we we don't have the structural support to allow people to move in and out of I mean especially when talking about chronic illnesses including like you know rare neuroimmune disorders a lot of people ebb and flow you know you have flares sometimes you feel better this week and maybe not next week and we don't or maybe this year and not next year and we don't really have structures in place you're right this systems do not accommodate just the natural flow of illness of disease of disability that will let you be successful and to the degree that you want to be however you define it without running into so many barriers and then we you talked a little bit about education about how you the kind of in the context i guess of employment of people the the study you saw of people not having lower employment rates as disabled i guess i think you said phd or Mm -hmm. you know uh, so in term, there's there's issues obviously as well as with employment. There's issues with education inequality in schools, in terms of students with disabilities or disabled students not having kind of the same access to education as mm-hmm. non-disabled their non-disabled peers. So just kind of your thoughts in terms of how education inequality in school kind of might contribute to inequality in other areas of life and how kind of inclusion in classrooms might benefit everyone. Yeah, I think, you know, when you're talking about this and you're thinking about this outside of sort of the employment idea, and we, we always tie education to employment, but, you know, school, especially the primary secondary level, a lot of it too is about learning to be a social being a part of society and building social networks, meeting friends, joining sports teams, extracurriculars, you know, all of those things are part of the educational experience. And overwhelmingly, those are not accessible to students with disabilities in in many school settings. So they're isolated and they're kept away from those skill building opportunities, those opportunities that allow them to be part of a friend network, part of a social network, part of a community, to build an identity that's more than being a disabled kid, you know? And inequality, and I think that's probably something that's really overlooked is inequality in access to opportunities outside the classroom i think there are probably a lot of people who would say some of their fondest memories of being in school are not about being in a like at a desk taking a test you know there's so much more to school and even if you talk about college and beyond there's so much more to school than the actual school classroom experience and so by 
making it difficult or challenging for people to have accommodations necessary to fully participate in the entire school experience, you keep people from developing socially. You know, the Surgeon General has, you know, said quite strongly that loneliness is a health hazard. It's one of the, the most dangerous things happening in public health today. And that's still for a lot of disabled kids and disabled students in general, part of their experience is loneliness and going to class and going home is hard because you know your friend and people make friends through these extracurricular activities. And if you don't have that opportunity, you don't have access to the friend network in the same way. And that inherently makes, it can lead to loneliness, especially if you're an introverted person like myself. You know, so, you know, it, it's, it's a lot, uh, uh, there's a lot more to inequality in schools than the classroom experience. And I think that there are probably many parents who would say that that's, that's something that is more difficult to remediate because, there, I mean, what, what are the rules for that? You know, there's no like, individualized education, you know, program for the soccer team, you know, but, but there's a way that even if the kid cannot fully participate in the activity that they can still be part of it. And again, this is a matter of the inflexibility of seeing how things can be done differently. How can we structure our systems to be more inclusive? You know, equity is not about making everybody do exactly the same thing. It's about making sure that people can thrive in society with resources that allow them to reach the potential that they would like to reach. That's kind of how I think about it. But yeah, I, I, I think there's there's a lot of inequality and, and the, the, the biggest thing to me, especially thinking like K through 12 and even undergraduate is not having access to all of those other educational opportunities outside the classroom can leave you on the outside of society. And that's really bad for our health. Definitely, yeah. Yep, all of this stuff is tied, tied to health. Um, so we, it, moving on from kind of like employment and education, and those are two also huge topics that I think we could have like a five part series on each of the, you know, there's right. like a massive uh, potential discussion there, but thinking about healthcare settings and how, you know, experiences, we talked a, a bit in the last podcast about the medical model of disability, but, right. But in terms of how experiences might differ in healthcare settings, if you have a disability and kind of potential lack of accommodations there. Yeah. So, you know, if I think about the healthcare environment for, for a, there's so much in the healthcare environment that is not welcoming 
to disabled people. I am thinking, for example, you know, last time I went to the rheumatologist, you get an exam, hop up on the table, like, what? (laughs) The table is not adjustable. And this is an office where lots of people have like inflammation and joint problems and all of these things that, you know, you, in your head, you say like, obviously you should have an adjustable table in this place. So when you want to examine people, they can, to, to move themselves with, because most people want to be able to move their own bodies to the degree possible. Uh, for them to be able to do this with the level of assistance that they want. And I'm like, I can throw myself up there, but someone else can't. And I think that there's a lot of things in, in the, again, first thing I think accessibility, the built environment. But I mean, it's a reality. There's a lot of things in the built environment in healthcare settings that are made to accommodate the needs of the provider, not the patient. So whether it's tables that are not adjustable or scales that don't accommodate wheelchair users or beds that are not wide enough for people who are of larger size, I can go on and on and on. I mean, like even, you know, like if you're in the hospital and you have one of those nice little remotes and they tell you press this and this and this, but all the buttons are smooth. (laughs) If you have a visual impairment, you don't know, you know, like unless someone like literally like shows you and no one has the time for that. So there are these smooth buttons and you don't know what you're pressing. That's the kind of thing that if you had more disabled people in healthcare, they might be actually able to point out. But I think also the other thing that can happen with a lot of people, especially people who maybe don't feel as confident advocating for themselves or maybe don't feel like they have the degree of health education or literacy that they, either they don't know that they don't have or don't feel confident with, is that providers can think you don't know anything. There's, I think, you know, there's enough studies that show that people rate the intelligence of disabled people, of, you know, bafflingly people who are wheelchair users as um, the lower intelligence, still don't understand it, but lower intelligence. And so if you're presenting yourself to a provider who has been educated in an ableist system, you may very well be engaging with someone who has perceived you to be of lower intelligence or lowered knowledge or understanding of your condition. And you're starting from a position behind where you should be, even if you might know more than them about your particular condition. So again, ableism rears its head, but in between the built environment with this really constructed more for providers, not for patients, and people assuming as a disabled person, you don't have the capability to learn and understand your condition. Those are just two of the the things that you can run into in healthcare setting. Of course, there's many, many more. If you need a caregiver and people don't understand, say your family relationships, not everybody has, you know, a mom or a dad. Either, um, you know, spouse. Some people have other types of 
familial relationships that aren't necessarily by blood or marriage. If you need someone to be there at an appointment with you and they don't understand who they this person is, that's another issue you might face if you're a person with a disability. So there's, I really, you know, if you had more people with disabilities who managed to make it through the gauntlet of education and actually practice, you might see some of these issues start to be addressed more readily than for those of us who are kind of knocking on from the outside. Definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's, I, I see in kind of in my own experience of when I go to see a medical provider, how the medical model definitely also impacts how they approach conversations with me or, or just kind of a lack of, of awareness of the difference kind of between a medical condition and a disability, like that there mm-hmm. are, there's overlap there, obviously, but they're not necessarily, you know, so it's, yeah. And there's, as you said, there's a ton of, of barriers that exist for people trying to access care with a disability. You know, it's just the built environment, provider biases, insurance mm-hmm. issues, not um, having yes. enough time, <laughs> not having enough time for the appointment, just, just mm-hmm. so many things. And again, that it could be its own podcast with you know yes, right transportation yeah, transportation <laughs> yeah you know all, yeah. all of that stuff so it's yeah there's there's definitely a lot a lot there so it is it's currently this kind of is a, a shift to to mm-hmm. a different topic a little bit but july is disability pride month or if you had any thoughts on kind of why you think people with disabilities disability pride or should have you know kind of celebrate this and how can how can people kind of get a a, what what should maybe non-disabled people do this month for disability pride i think that disability pride i'm so glad you brought this up i think disability pride is really important because it's somewhat different from other marginalized groups in that although 20% of the U.S. population um, has an, you know, at least one identifiable disability, they're not all the same. And there's no like unifying disability experience or, you know, range of experiences that I can sit next to this person and say, yes, we can, beyond saying we both identify disabled people, if all my disabilities are invisible and yours are all visible, we may not share very many experiences. So I think the idea of disability pride, first and foremost, is important because it helps create some sense of community of a a shared identity as disabled people living in an ableist society. So however we confront, engage, or fight ableism, it's going to be different based on our disabilities, but it's the same in the sense that it is ableism that is holding us back. Um, 
I think that disability pride is also important because it gives us the opportunity to think about what it means to be disabled. It's a huge question. And, you know, I have my opinion. Someone else has their own opinion. We get, you know, we can talk, we can introduce people to the idea of the social model versus the medical model of disability and why it's important to understand that those, you know, those are just, those are two of the models of disability, but those are, you know, two of the, the, the most impactful ones. And to introduce the abled world to the idea that, you know, disability is part of the human condition is not a failing or it's not a failure. It is a way of existing in the world. Um, and the problem for many disabled people is not necessarily their disability. It's the lack of accommodation. And I think, you know, it's really because we're so spread out. And, I mean, but there are a lot of great groups are spread out, but I mean, there's, you know, like a lot of universe, like my, you know, you think about interest groups, whatever. So for example, my undergrad, grad, whatever, my university, that I went to put out a thing on um, LinkedIn yesterday. They're, they're doing alumni affinity groups. And it was the first time that I had seen them mention something for people with disabilities and neurodivergence. And I was like, I, I was just shocked, you know, like, I can't believe that you guys are actually doing this. This is amazing because for me, that is, always the ableism has been a bigger barrier to getting through the professional world and that's who i want to talk to i want to know how other people deal with it like how do you find opportunities if you walk in with a cane how do people respond to that how did people you know you talked about being a wheelchair user and trying to figure out how how did you, at what state, you know, like there's some practical things that, that something like disability pride opens up the space for discussion about, like, how do you disclose? When do you disclose? How do you, do you feel comfortable disclosing? And these are questions that you can only ask people who've had similar experiences. And there's, I think the disability pride movement is just about embracing this as our experience and not hiding from it but understanding how you know it doesn't make you a better person it makes you a different person who contributes to society in a different way and making it making it a better place for everybody to live in i'm not wandering in the inspiration point disabled people are not better people <laughs> i'm not some terrible people but it makes you interact with society in a different way that makes it better for everyone. And I think in terms of non-disabled people, it's, all right, I want to illustrate this with an anecdote as we often do. 
I wear compression socks and I have taken to wearing very loud, very lovely, fashionable compression socks. Because if I have to wear them most days, I might as well be fun. So I found myself at a uh, July 4th party where I was the only person wearing socks. Because it was extremely hot. <laughs> but I, you know, the, I knew that I was going to do a lot better wearing socks. Uh, I consider that one of, that's just one of my, you know, uh, it's like my pain. It's something that helps me get through the world a lot easier. And, you know, this kid asked me, why are you wearing socks? Which at first I was like, because I'm wearing shoes. But then I realized no one else is wearing socks. So this this is kind of strange for him. And I told him, and I did, you know, I didn't make anything. I said, I have a medical condition that requires me to wear socks and it helps me feel healthier. And then he asked again, and I don't, I don't know. I was like, but did I not answer your question right? So I, 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 I tried to, you know, kind of maybe bring, make, explain it a little bit simpler. And his mom was like, no, don't ask. His mom was like, no, don't ask that question. And I'm like, no, it's fine for him to ask the question. I think, you know, it's, and I think that's often something that happens with able people is like, they either ask questions that are way too invasive or don't want to, are afraid to ask. And then there's a happy medium in there. Don't be afraid to ask, but just be civilized. I'm not going to give you all the details, but I think the, like a, a, a society that keeps people, you know, from childhood teaches them not to ask keeps them from learning it keeps people from learning and i think a big part of what able people can gain from disability pride is learning that disability is a part of the human condition it is not a medical diagnosis it is not something that requires you to be walled off in society and it also means that for you to learn you have to be comfortable asking like a civil human do not ask questions that you would not answer and i think that you know obviously people are really open as we know with social media but i think most people understand to some extent how to ask a question respectfully and i don't i don't have a problem answering questions for example I might go somewhere with a cane one day and then two weeks later the same person sees me without one and they'll say oh what happened I'll, I'm, I'm honest i would say sometimes i need a cane sometimes i don't that's my disability uh, you know i that's the life that's what i live with i don't think that that's not offensive to me you know able people sometimes feel uncomfortable with it but I'm frankly proud that I managed to get through my life every day and get things done and, you know, accept that a cane is part of my life. And since it's a part of my life, it might as well be fun. You know, I, you know there's a disability pride flag. It's got all these colors on it. I think it's brilliant. You know, we're all different. And we all have different experiences. And able people, you're eventually going to have some kind of disability. If I would say, if you're lucky, you're going to end up with a disability of some kind. 
because you'll live long enough to have one. And so just listen to the voices that you're hearing. Don't tell people they're not disabled, by the way. I've had that. No, I. that's definitely for me to define, not for you. Just listen to people's voices, much like we have all of these other wonderful pride, pride Month. We have all kinds of History Month for all these different races and ethnicities, the Women's History Month. Just listen to people's voices. I'm not saying only during this month, but I think definitely having a space in which disabled people can just live an openly truthful life as a disabled person and be honest about their experience is really critical and if this is a an entree for people particularly who are newly disabled to recognize that they have not failed then july is a great place great time to start um and if your accommodation is you need air conditioning this is a great month <laughs> to advocate for that, you know, I mean, because it's re it's a reality. Some people, that's their accommodation. Um, and just learning, taking this time to learn more about yourself and being proud to stand up as a person, whether you identify as a disabled person, a person with a disability, and just being to whatever extent you want to be a resource for the non-disabled people around you to understand that it is just another way of being. Yeah, exactly. And as you said, there's so, we, the internet has so many things. There's no reason to be asking people these very intrusive questions. Absolutely not. So you can find it for you <laughs> But, but there's so much to learn, like you can, and there's so many disabilities, you know, there, as you said, also, you know, I have mobility disability. I don't know. I don't know about every other type of disability, right. the same sort of, you know, having that lived experience is very different than just learning about it kind of more academically or social, you know? And so, so yeah, it's great that we, I think, yeah, disability pride, it, it, it also challenges people because people are like, wait, you're proud of your dis disability? What? And exactly. A lot of people, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, supposed to hide it or just like excuse yeah. it. And oh, I, I did, I, I, I'm, I'm quite pleased with what, you know, I mean, I'm not pleased with the situation, you know, the circumstances but I'm proud of what I've managed to do. And that's an ongoing process. I think that's the other thing for people to not feel like they need to, to borrow from the LGBTQ movement, be out and proud. It's an ongoing everyday process. I'm not proud every day. I'm really not. Today, not feeling very proud. But <laughs> still, it's at least to put the the, the thought in your head that you by virtue of living in the ableist world that we live in right now should be proud of your survival that's kind of how I, I see it 
Definitely. Yeah. And I think also having pride doesn't necessarily, doesn't mean that there aren't these barriers that still exist as we've talked about ableism a lot. So it's not to erase that or to say, you know, it, it, I think I've seen a lot of during disability pride month calls to action to people to be for non-disabled people to be aware of the, of how ableism impacts people's lives and society and all of that. So, you know, as you said, it's, 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 I mean, it can be really hard having a disability with the way that the, the world is and having a lot of like, you know, internalized ableism as well. But, but yeah, it's, I just wanted to kind of talk about, since we're in disability pride month, talk about, about mm -hmm. month. absolutely. So yeah, any kind of final thoughts? I, I know there's, I feel like we just touched the surface of so many things, but. <laughs> I just, I think I would say that speaking it's a little bit more specifically to people with rare neuroimmune dis disorders, a good start is understanding your particular illness. So SRNA for people go to the website. There's a lot of resources that you can use just you know for yourself to understand. But as we were talking about family, friends, work, school, for also for when you're looking for accommodations, perhaps again to the degree you're comfortable, but it can at least help you understand how to explain what's going on with you and that why now you need XYZ for you to be able to remain in the workplace or what the school needs to do to support you or whatever it might be. Understanding your illness and the way that it manifests as disability can help you advocate for yourself. And self-understanding and self-knowledge is always great for pride because if you, and I'm going to speak personal experience, but if you think about all of the, you know, things that could have happened to you and that you, you're, you're still getting out there and fighting the good fight, you should, you should, you should be pretty proud of yourself because these are not, you know, minor minor things that can happen to you and that a lot of them just come you know you, there's no warning and for you to still be going through life and chugging along is something to be proud of and you know there's the peer connects there's uh, all people who have experience and are great if you know you want to talk about issues like this are great people to talk to. I'm always happy to talk to people about this. As you know, I can go on and on and on and on. <laughs> I think when you're when you're starting to navigate your worlds, whether it's you're newly diagnosed or you're starting to experience different symptoms, um, you've had a recurrence, whatever it might be, you're again going to be dealing with what is a disability? What is my disability? How do I you know, like, oh, I've heard of recurrence. How do I explain this to people who thought this was a one and done thing? You know, so I think SRNA is a really great resource, peer connect leaders, support groups for, you know, finding people who have a, a somewhat more 
uh, accessible, <laughs> that word, accessible experience for you to, to discuss this with. Because it's, it's, a, it's a challenging role. To, and because they're rare, a lot of us, you, who else is in your life that you can talk to about this? And well, we can help you find somebody. Yes, thank you. But, and hopefully we can continue having these conversations. And there's just, again, so much to, to cover. So thank you for taking the time again to, to do this. You're absolutely welcome. I'm very happy to do this. Mm -hmm.